日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey everybody, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast for yet another episode.、Uh, this is Chris, and today I'm here with Travis and Nate. Yo. Hello there. All right, and today we'll be talking about the Edo period、uh, millet grubbers and dirt farmers, basically the peasantry, the people who lived outside the cities. So,、uh, one of the things that we'll be talking about is sort of the, the what I, I think is sort of an unusual amount of leeway that they were given as peasants in a feudal domain. Uh, normally, you kind of think of peasantry as、uh, oppressed and, and crushed and, and、uh, at the beck and call of their overlords, but the peasants of the Edo period really didn't seem to be in that type of situation. They seemed to have it better than、uh, peasants in other feudal domains or cultures. Basically, the samurai lived in cities separated from the common people, so the、uh, peasants really had no contact with them directly. So, as long as they paid their taxes on time, they were pretty much free to do whatever they wanted. Um, you know, within the bounds of the law and within the bounds of reason. But、uh, sort of they were basically self directed and、uh, self monitored and self led. And so it's a, it's a pretty interesting topic.、Uh, I don't know how that changes from the Sengoku period, but once the Edo period hits, they seem to be given a lot, a lot of leeway.、Um, again, they may have had leeway in the Sengoku period, and I'm sure Nate would be able to、uh, touch on that. But、uh, I guess to get us started is our Edo period expert, Travis. So. Oh, okay. Well,、um, I mean, I think that the idea of them having so much leeway, I, I, I can't really compare it to, I don't know enough about Europe or China to really compare. But、um, I think this connects into what, what, what Luke Roberts says in his book,、um, Performing the Great Peace, about how all of Edo society was kind of intersecting.、Um, Intersecting circles of kind of pri- private and public. So basically, you know, a village is in its own way, it's kind of a private sphere in, in, in the sense of, you know, just manage your own private affairs and we won't, we won't come, in, come into the village and bother you.、Um, just manage your, your, your private affairs. And as long as you f- still fulfill your public obligations, that's, that's it. That's all. Pay that's your taxes, et cetera. Right. Pay your taxes. Don't cause trouble.、Um, Don't have any you know, major crimes or anything that you can't solve yourselves. And、uh, also, most、uh, importantly,、yeah. don't, don't,、uh, don't complain and don't cause us any problems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and especially don't, you know, co- don't, don't, don't skip levels. Don't complain about the Lord to the Shogunate or something because then you're really in trouble. But we should probably talk basically about, give a rundown of the caste system to kind of give a, a, a basic background the, the, the Edo period caste system. Yeah. So, stereotypically,、um, people talk about there being、um, a four rank system, right? The、uh, Shi no Kosho,、um, which is samurai on the top, because obviously they're samurai and they're the best because they said so.、Um, peasants next, because they're farmers and, and they produce.、Um, The food that you know, feeds the whole country. And because of this whole kind of Confucian notion of self sufficient society being built on agriculture, right? Below the peasants are the artisans who make things, which is important and valuable. 
and and below them is the uh, the merchants who don't make anything and just make money off of other people's toil. And then below them, or really kind of out, not really below them, but outside of the system, are all kinds of other people, performers, actors, um, prostitutes, as well as uh, various different kinds of uh, outcasts, people who, uh, leather workers and things like that. Um, and I don't know, I've heard very conflict, we could probably do an entire podcast on just like whether or not this model is actually a thing, because people certainly talk about it, even in the period but then it's not super well enforced and a lot of people kind of go between uh, and kind of blur the lines between which, which of the four fields they should be in. Um, but anyway, that's sort of the, the stereotypical um, hierarchy uh, that people talk about. Well, I, I think if I can interject here, I, I think Please. we also need to keep in mind, uh, you know, number one, that there's another group that you didn't mention, which is the court nobility, the Kuge, oh, right. Uh, right. who exist over the top of it, socially speaking, even though not politically mm. speaking uh, at this time. Uh, and the other point that I would mention is that the, the four-class system, um, I really – I mean I know we, we, we use the word caste in order to kind of uh, you know just describe it, but it's, it's not really the same sort of caste system that India has, which was very much more distinct, I think, um, and religiously based. The, the four-class idea uh, was borrowed from uh, Confucianism, uh, which lays out like the ideal state where you have you know the emperor at the top is the benevolent father, and then the four classes underneath mm-hmm. him uh, in the 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 same order. The the difference that the if I understand this correctly, that the Japanese did it was instead of the top class being the you know bureaucracy scholars and 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 so mm-hmm. forth that they substituted in the samurai because well who was the, who were the ones making these rules it was the samurai so they put themselves there uh, as they transitioned from the spending most of their time worrying about battles to spending most of their time worrying about you know managing society uh, as they as we move into the Edo period. Um, I, I think that's sort of where the idea comes from is this Confucian ideology that uh, was adopted and then you know they tried to fit it around kind of what they had uh, and it goes along with as we're coming out of the Sengoku period into the Edo period the ideas of you know the Heino Bunri uh, of Hideyoshi separating the uh, warrior class and the peasant class and, and all these you know into these classes in order to establish some sort of uh, social order the idea being impose social order we will have no more you know warfare no more uh, unrest that uh, that comes from it uh, and of course since since we're at the top that sounds like a great idea cuz you know then nobody's overthrowing us that's what sort of i've i've heard the sort of the confucian ideals as an explanation for why the peasantry were sort of allowed to do their thing and were sort of left alone but, uh, you know, the reality is I, I kind of do find it hard to believe that any upper class really held any benevolence towards anyone below them. So I, I'm kind of curious about that, if you have any thoughts on that, uh, either of you. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, I also want to add that this is all connected into the idea that the Confucian idea that if everybody just uh, behaves appropriately according to their position, if the peasants really act like peasants and the uh, merchants really act like merchants, then 
then society will, will fall into order and everything will be prosperous, right? So you have to have these kinds of distinctions that people really know their place and perform their place, right? Um, right. As for whether the samurai rulers are actually benevolent or not, um, the, the, the rhetoric of, benev- of benevolent rule gets used tons in the Edo period. People are constantly – to the extent that people are allowed to petition their uh, superiors at all, they very, very often petition them within the context of what counts as benevolent rule. Um, so for example, you have – I think this is probably going back into the Sengoku period that you have the Tokusei Iki, um, which are sort of peasant mobs that rise up demanding benevolent rule, Tokusei. Right. And um, to, uh, which – uh, from what I just read yesterday, uh, basically summarizes down to um, debt forgiveness. Um, but then also um, you have um, – I, I recently read Amy Stanley's book, Selling Women, which is all about prostitution in the Edo period. It's really excellent. Um, and she talks about how in a lot of towns, people would, would petition the um, – I don't know, the local authorities, the city authorities and demand – you know, benevolent rule, either on the basis of we should get rid of the prostitution because it's uh, corrupting our morals and pulling our 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 young our uh, our young men away from work, something like that, or uh, appealing to benevolent government in the sense that we should keep prostitution because it's essential to maintaining the economic uh, well-being of the town. That that definitely comes up a lot, at least you know rhetorically. Yeah, I think the, uh, the the idea of the petitions and then ultimately uh, uprisings we should definitely tackle. But I think first uh, we should try to look at the structure of a typical village. I th- I, you mentioned uh, off-air that uh, you had been reading up on on fishing villages. Uh, I only have a vague understanding is basically you do, you'll do you have like a village headman who sort of handles the affairs and brings things to the upper authorities. But what, what was the typical sort of organization of a, of a village? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I read, and I, mean, I guess this this podcast, I'm just dropping names. I'm just re- mentioning books, but um, I read this book by Arne Kalland, uh "Fishing Villages in Tokugawa, Japan." I think it's called, um, and he looks like crazy, super in depth at just Chikuzen Province, which is Fukuoka. So, uh, I mean, he goes crazy, super in depth as to like every little detail of how things were done there. Whether this applies to every other province, I have no idea. But at least in Chikuzen, in Fukuoka, you have a system where each village is designated by the daimyo, by the domain government, um, designated as either, let's see if I can remember, either um, ura, which is like coastal areas, okabun, which is which literally means hills, but it's sort of the, the farming areas, or machi, which is the town areas, the uh, commercial areas. And these three are taxed differently. They're governed differently. Um, and of course, as you might expect, not every village actually sort of fulfilled the role that it was designated as. There were plenty of fishing villages that were doing a lot of uh, shipping and were not actually fishing and so forth. But um, anyways, that's part of it. And uh, yeah, I actually don't know the precise ins and outs of how the village headmen and all that worked. But from what I gather... Um, yeah, for the most part, you had a village headman, which was probably a, her- a hereditary position, and he was responsible for collecting up the taxes and sort of maintaining order, and he had to report back to some kind of 
a local district authority or something like that, who in turn was responsible to either the domain directly or maybe some so another intermediary kind of uh, regional authority. I do know when I, I uh, read Vlastos's book, Peasant Protests and Uprisings in Tokugawa, Japan, it, it also talked about how uh, villages were sort of grouped together. So you'd have a, a group of five or six villages that uh, were all sort of interconnected as far as the headmen all sort of, maybe they sort of oversaw the overall villages and uh, they basically dealt with the, the sort of the intermediary between the, the tax people and the, and the peasants and... So it was. It was uh, each the villages were were interconnected uh, at that level, and I'm not really sure. Once you get below the village headman level, I'm not really sure how it was organized. I'm not even sure if that's really all that you know important to the conversation. But um, it does seem like they do ha did have pretty solid networks between uh, villages. Which, when we kind of get into the the protesting and the petitioning, that's that'll definitely come into play. Yeah, I mean, I think I I, I unfortunately don't know that much about the actual kind of political structures. But um, certainly on, on, a, on, an on an economic level um, or whatever you want to say in terms of commercial interaction, all of these villages are much more interconnected than the um, stereotypical image might be. You know, we have this idea that villages and villagers are just uh, isolated, you know, living their own small little lives, maybe never visiting the next village over in their entire life, something like that. Um, but in truth, you know, even as far back as the Kamakura period, um, Amino Yoshihiko reminds us that uh, there were plenty of places that were, you know, kind of provincial, remote, um, that were actually, you know, extremely well connected. And, the, and in the Edo period as well, Kaland in his book on Fukuoka points out that almost every village was, you know, not just fishermen and or uh, farmers, but that almost every single village would have had warehousers, shippers, uh, coopers, that is to say barrel makers, uh, maybe shipwrights. Um, if you don't have a shipwright, at the very least, you have some kind of ship repair person. Uh, um, carpenters, blacksmiths, uh, sake brewers, spinners, dyers, inns, soy sauce brewers. Um, so, you know, and these people are, are absolutely um, shipping whatever they, whatever they do produce to other places. Um, and sometimes, depending on which village it is, they might be connected into some really sort of extensive like nationwide networks, you know, um, ships from ships bringing kelp uh, kombu from Hokkaido all the way down to Okinawa and stopping um, all along the Sea of Japan coast and the Inland Sea coast along the way. So these villages were, you know, were actually really um, interconnected and, and, and uh, very actively, yeah, in, involved with one another. Yeah, I found that uh, I found that pretty surprising too, and uh, I think that sort of naturally moves towards the the, the tax side of things. Um, I think we should we'll probably touch on uh, taxation in the Sengoku period uh, in a second because it's sort of you know it kind of transitioned from there to the Edo period. But seem at least from what I read on the the, the inland villages, uh, generally speaking, you were required to pay your your taxes in rice, even if you were doing something else like uh, producing silk or other textiles. So. Uh, which meant you may need to sell your textile for rice in order to pay your taxes. Occasionally, they were allowed to pay in-kind, meaning you could pay the equivalent of rice in silk. But I think it, may, it must have been just easier for them in general to receive the uh, taxes in rice, because I, I guess that's how they paid the retainers, presumably. I, I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts on, on the paying in rice versus in-kind, but... Yeah, no, I think, I think I've heard the same. Yeah, I mean, Amino talks about that in his book, that there were a lot of places... 
I mean, again, just to kind of reiterate the point that not every village is producing just uh, agricultural materials or fish. You know, there are some villages that are really big on lumber or iron or uh, salt. And I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, that he also, that Amino also says that really, for the most part, people did have to pay um, in rice, that they sold their iron or their salt to get enough rice to, to pay their taxes. And I don't know, I have a bit here on um, the, the taxes in the fishing villages, but really, it just sort of makes things complicated. Um, <laughs> there's, um, yeah, there's land, ta- and there's land tax called Nengu, right, which I think is probably the more standard thing that most people did pay throughout the country. And that could be as much as 50 or 60% of your production. Um, but then on t- top of that, you're taxed based on uh, your, your – in the case of fishing villages, you're taxed in terms of your equipment, that is to say your nets. You're taxed for fishing licenses and, ac- and rights and access to the fishing grounds. Um, and in terms of access to fishing grounds, that's actually a whole topic that um, Callan talks about. So we can talk about it later if we want or maybe it's a little bit too separate. Um, you're taxed by the size of your ship and you're taxed again by the type and extent of the cargoes on your ship. Um, and then on top of all of that, um, uh, villages were very often – villagers – yeah, sorry, villages, I guess, as a whole, the village headmen representing the whole village were very often um, uh, forced by their by, – by the daimyo, I guess, or forced by whatever authorities above them to, to produce extra loans, uh, loans and also sort of gifts expressing gratitude. So whenever the daimyo needed more money, he would just say, oh, you know, I'm taking a loan from my people, from the merchants or whatever, um, or I'm expecting more gifts. Um, so it was, it was a pretty heavy burden. Yeah, and I, I do know that, uh, you know, speaking of burden, that uh, Tokugawa Ies basically said something along the lines of uh, tax the peasants to the extent that they don't die, but uh, that they also can't live, meaning just keep them just above the poverty level so they don't give us any problems. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty... I've heard, yeah, squeeze squeeze them like sesame seeds until you get the oil out. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I mean, uh, you you have the same kind of situation uh, that uh, we have in the modern day. But uh, uh, that aside, uh, you know, also the uh, the villages themselves, when uh, if if a particular farm... Because basically how the taxation worked, from my understanding, is that the entire village was, was tacked as a whole. It wasn't like, oh, I'm responsible for this, you're responsible for that. Technically, they were, but the uh, Bakufu or their representatives didn't care. Basically, the entire village as a whole was was uh, liable for the sum total. So, when there were farmers who were not able to meet their quota, they you know they either got a, a loan from uh, a more wealthy farmer, or people would band together and kind of help pay each other's debts each year as far as rice goes. But uh, they weren't held to an individual. As far as the Bakufu wasn't concerned, no, in, the individual villagers were not held to uh, held responsible for their part it was the village as a whole was held responsible for the sum total right well this this goes back to to luke roberts's idea i think about the way that uh it sort of concur um what's the word not concurrent circles um anyway circles concentric of, um, of, of, of responsibility yeah i mean i think the village headman thank you concentric circles the village headman might have um you know, might have really looked to individual households to say you have to pay your share. But as long as the headman had brought together enough to give to the, the next level up, that, that next level up, you know, didn't care for the individual households. 
You know, one thing too is that you know I, I did read. That, I mean, again, I, I really only looked at one book, and then I kind of browsed a few articles. But from what I could see, uh, you either had again you had the option of paying in rice or in kind, meaning paying in the textile that you produce. But I didn't see, or there was no indication anywhere that uh, it could ever be con- uh, converted to coin, and your taxes could be paid in coin, which in in during the Sengoku period was was a thing. And I wasn't sure if uh, either you have heard of any Edo period domains that did that, or if Nate uh, can talk about why that went out of favor. Um, well, as far as during the Edo period, whether that was done or not, I, I, Travis may have a, a fresher memory of uh, uh, Amino Yoshihiko's uh, book. I know I, I read it like a while ago, and I, I believe he says in there somewhere that that it was possible, it just wasn't common in the sense that it wasn't a systemized you know, uh, method of, of payment so much as it was uh, a by exception sort of thing uh, as far as why it, it was a thing in the Sengoku period and then, then became not a thing in the, in the, the Edo period. It was, a, it was a thing during the Sengoku because uh, the daimyo who were in the midst of fighting each other uh, particularly in the, in the Kanto area, realized that if they placed the burden of, con- of cash conversion onto the taxpayers, the, the you know, peasantry or, or cultivators or, or whomever, then they didn't have to do it and they didn't have to lose out in you know, the conversions and, uh, and so forth. And cash was an easier thing to then go purchase uh, supplies, or weapons, uh, etc., to you know pay for the prosecution of warfare. So, um, so that's why it, it became a thing in many domains. Uh, you know, uh, underneath the Sengoku Daimyo, it did it went away uh, because Hideyoshi went away from it uh, when he became the uh, Kampaku and, and, and you know the national hegemon. Uh, with his uh, the Taiko Kenshi, he he reverted everything back to a uh, kokudaka or or you know taxes in rice as opposed to the kondaka or the taxes in cash. As to why he did that, uh, that's a good question that I'm not really sure I know the answer to. Part of it may have been to uh, at least systematize it so that uh, nationwide there was one standard. Uh, part of it may have been the so because he didn't want the uh, daimyo underneath him to have the you know to place the burden of cash conversion uh, onto the peasants. Uh, if they have that burden, maybe it's harder for them to buy uh, war material and then rise up against him. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing stuff out there uh, and you know seeing if it sticks on the wall, but. Um, that's that's sort of the background on that. Um, one thing I'd like to kind of circle back on is this uh, is the idea of the oppressed peasant uh, when it comes to taxes. Uh, I, I think, and of course, I'm in the middle of uh, writing a paper right now on uh, samurai myths, so this is one of the things that has come up in my reading. Um, but you know, one of the things I want to I want to point out is that. You know, we, we already said that the, the peasants were given the second place status because they uh, were the producers 
that uh, that everybody else kind of lived off of the fruits of their labors. The flip side of that is the samurai didn't produce anything. So you know when we see things written or uh, or allegedly said like you know squeeze them like uh, sesame seeds to get the oil out or uh, you know don't let the uh, or, or take everything you can for the peasants uh, just enough to live the land. Part of that is because the entire economy. Uh, well, I mean that's a gross exaggeration, but y you get the point. The you know the the ones who were producing agricultural resources were the peasants, uh, and the samurai class needed to take it from the peasants in order to then turn around for the for the bakufu for the shogunate to pay uh, its retainers for the daimyo to pay their retainers because pretty much the samurai had turned into a giant bureaucracy to manage society but they didn't actually produce anything for society um, so so that's why kind of that attitude may have been prevalent amongst the samurai the other part of it, the flip side of it, uh, that I would say is that, you know, we have this image of, uh, you know, the samurai uh, slash the nobility. And if you want to compare it to Europe, you know, thinking about the landed lords, uh, the nobles, whatever they, whatever have you, uh, oppressing the peasants by imposing these crushing taxes. What, what we actually see a lot of, I think, in the Edo period is, is the flip side where uh, you know, merchants, of course, are, are often talked about as getting rich, but you know, even many, uh, much of the, uh, the 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 larger landowning or at least land working uh, farmers, cultivators, uh, developed you know surpluses for themselves and and became I don't know if well to do is the right word, but but became you know comparatively to many of the lower ranking. Uh, members of the samurai class who lived on stipends and then and then that's it. Uh, one of the things that uh, you know, of course, was was an issue as the, we get further into the Edo period was inflation. Um, inflation means prices go up, but samurai stipends stayed the same. They didn't they didn't get adjusted. So you had you know samurai oftentimes trying to maintain a certain standard of living that they were expected to. Uh, manage uh, on less and less actual buying power from the money they were getting. Meanwhile, um, you know, I mean, merchants is, is a whole different discussion. But even the the peasant class, uh, you know, their their taxes were set based off of a, a, a survey of uh, land that they had. But then they could go open new land that wasn't under the last survey and you know pocket that as as extra if they had the uh, the means to work it. So oftentimes I think we lose sight of the fact that just because the samurai were dominant politically doesn't necessarily mean they were the best well off in all cases. You know, I may be reaching a little bit here, but I think some of it, at least in the uh, the narrative of the, the oppressed peasant, uh, comes from, you know, 19th, century, 19th and 20th century politics where the Marxist argument is that uh, you know the the bourgeoisie or the you know bureaucracy or the nobles or uh, the aristocracy, whomever it may be, is is oppressing the common man, um, and certainly that went on, but you know it's just as much in their political uh, you know rhetorical interest to uh, set this stark contrast of see they're oppressing you know help help and being repressed 
and then uh, uh, you know it makes it easier to then uh, justify violent overthrow and so forth. So I think actually that's where a lot of our images come from, uh, and so it's important to dive into the details, uh, you know, like we're talking about here, to really get a, a better picture of you know rather than just draw these simplified lines of okay, well, you know, the peasants made all the food, but then they were oppressed by the samurai uh, who were mean and nasty and took all their rights and, and, and so forth. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that, as the two of you obviously know. Oh, yeah. Although there is also the, the issue that, uh, or I would assume anyway, that, uh, you know, once a famine hit, the hardest hit were probably the villagers over the samurai. Well, right, because when you've got the military and political power, you can make sure that you're at least getting yours. That's a little oppressive. <laughs> just a bit <laughs> but uh you know one thing i i think we'll, we'll we'll definitely we should talk about at this point is uh the actual petitioning process and the the issue of uprisings when the petitions didn't really work out and uh one thing i found extremely interesting is petitions were allowed basically if uh either the the peasants feel that the daimyo or the bakufu whoever is kind of over them is is being unfair or if they had a particularly bad year for harvest and they're petitioning for lower taxes, you know, they'll say things, you know, as, as Travis mentioned, they'll basically say things like, oh, in order for us to stay as happy, productive peasants, uh, we, we ask, we beg that you reduce our tax burden by X amount or, or what have you. So, and it's always either prefaced or, or ended with that sort of statement of, so that we may remain as peasants, which I, I found interesting. And that's almost an, a requirement of the petition, like legally, because it seems like petitioning was in, in many cases, illegal, although it's kind of hazy to me how how it was illegal. I guess it's like if you if you make a demand, it's illegal. But if you make a if you if you sort of prostrate yourself and just state that you wish to stay a peasant and you're only requesting this in order to continue your livelihood, then it was deemed legal. It it, it seems a little strange to me, but it also seems very Japanese. I don't I don't know, Travis, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I I'm also a little bit uh, unclear. Uh, and all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I do get the impression that petitions were in general illegal, but kind of people did them anyway. In particular, I mean, you know, there were some locations, there were some situations in which there was some kind of actual system for petitioning. Uh, if you were a, a resident, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is. Yeah, resident. If you were a, a person of Tosa domain, there was a petition box outside the castle. And you could, you know, journey, journey to Kochi, journey to the castle, and uh, and you know, put your anonymous petition in a box. Um, but there were other domains where you had to put your name on it. Um, and I think I'm trying to remember either through petitions or through something else, people actually like demanded anonymity so that you couldn't, uh, there couldn't be any kind of. Uh, uh, you know, revenge against you by the authorities, right? You know, you, you make a petition uh, uh, complaining about the government and you put your name on it, they're, they're going to come after you. But in any case, um, in, for the most part, outside of that system, yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure that there was a particularly legal way of petitioning, particularly, particularly if you're going to petition um, sort of many levels up, like from a peasant to a daimyo. Pretty much you had to wait until the daimyo was like about to enter the castle and you just like ran past the guards and threw yourself into his palanquin or threw your letter into his palanquin. Um, Hope you didn't get, you know, yeah. sliced. I was going to say, it doesn't sound very safe. Well, 
what happens is you you get captured and arrest you arrested or whatever, probably get executed, but they still might read your petition and might actually consider doing something, you know, in order to benefit your family or your or your village or whatever it may be. The person who actually submitted the petition is probably going to get executed. Yeah, that was something I found really interesting about uh, the the petitioning process or even the the outright uprisings was. Yeah, basically, uh, in a lot of cases where you'll actually have outright protests, a lot of times the, the, the quote-unquote leaders would be executed, but then the daimyo would still approve the the or, or address the complaints, even though they execute the leaders. But then a lot of times they would say, oh, uh, it has nothing to do with the protests, but we decided to do this. Um, right, but, right, of course. Yeah, but a lot of times they, they would execute uh, all of the ringleaders, but then they, they would choose the the uh peasants over either the domain lord or the, the you know whoever maybe maybe it's a merchant in a particular area who is is abusing the peasants or something and uh in in most cases apparently in in many cases if not most the daimyo uh, or the bakufu would rule in favor of the peasants uh which i guess does make sense because they are again the ones that are producing and if if you're and, and I, I did notice, too, that if you're a daimyo or you're in a position of power, it's sort of your responsibility to keep your peasants happy. And if you're not able to do that, then you're going to face the wrath of the bakufu, even if it comes from peasants illegally protesting or petitioning. Absolutely. And that goes beyond, um, not, I mean, not just peasant protests, but basically anything, right? Uh, I mean, we, I don't want to get us too off track, but, um, but I mean, you have cases, uh, forget what year it was exactly but there's at one point you know the, the russians come to tsushima and decide they're just going to build the base and they refuse to leave and the and the lords of tsushima you know don't have enough power to get rid of them and it's basically just if you can't manage your own affairs in your own domain then uh you know the bakufu is going to punish you they're going to take away the domain or they're going to do something and it's just totally whether it hasn't post protest or whatever it is it really is just up to you to have to manage your own affairs successfully peacefully um, I did want to add also, though, that um, in terms of petitioning or whatever, um, I'm not positive exactly what the system was, but I assume that if you're uh, appealing to kind of a local city official, that, that you know, it wasn't quite as uh, as dangerous. It wasn't quite as, as um, illegal. I, I, I imagine that a peasant could speak to his village headman or, or the headman could speak to the, the, the head of the next city over you know, and not uh, get executed for petitioning or whatever. I'm not quite sure exactly how that worked, but there was some kind of actual system in place. Yeah, I did get the impression that they had like a local Bakufu official, maybe at a local city or something, where they could petition directly. But if if he denied it, then that was it. They had no other recourse. They were done, unless they decided to, at that point, uh, go above their head or, or outright protest. Yeah, I, well, and I, I think we should be careful to mention that a lot of it had nothing to do necessarily with the contents of petitioning so much as it was to go outside of the accepted channels for communication, like jumping a level Mm -hmm. uh, and and so forth was a violation of the social order. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that has a lot to do with why, you know, they might execute the guy who ran up to the uh, daimyo and and tossed a, a petition at him because, you know, he's jumping 17 levels of chain of command, so to speak. Uh, but then they would turn mm-hmm. around and go, you know what? Yeah, this is this is right. We should uh, maybe be a little bit, uh, you know, maybe pull back on the taxes this year or, or whatever it is. 
it was it was not so much the petition itself as it was the the, the method uh, and the you know the way that it was it, it was gone about. Of course, you know, with as with any large bureaucracy, which is basically what the samurai class of the Edo period was uh, in each domain. You know, the little it's it's like walking into your DMV uh, and and trying to get something done, and you know the person at the desk says no, uh, and you've got you know if you've got no other way to then uh, appeal to a manager or something else. I mean, what are you going to do? That's essentially the situation that we're talking about here. You know, they they have no ability to go around the person who's giving them the uh, the no answer or or not helping them. So. So that's how they would do it, and that and that that's what would be stepping out of the the social, uh, accept, you know, socially accepted means of doing things. Which, of course, I mean, you know, we all know that that's not well looked on in Japan today. Uh, they don't execute people for it most of the time. But. And also, uh, the, generally speaking, though, the peasants didn't really do that sort of thing unless they really had to. I mean, when you look when you look at the situ- when you look at the system. As long as they were able to pay their taxes and feed their families, you know, if, as long as they could and sort of maintain their livelihood, as long as they were able to do those three things, they really had no reason to. So generally speaking, uh, I'm sure there were exceptions, but generally speaking, if they did uprise or, or put a, an inappropriate petition, there was there was a, a good enough reason to where most likely they were going to get what they wanted. Although the people who were doing the petitioning or, or uprising would probably be executed for it, but... And and you almost get the impression that they, some of these people actually just sacrificed themselves. They knew that they were going to be executed, but they also knew that they would get what they ne- needed for their village or their family or what have you. Okay, and that's it for part one of our discussion on those filthy millet-grubbing dirt farmers, the peasants of the Edo period. As always, we'll be back with another episode in about two weeks, give or take. Now, in the meantime, if you'd like to continue the conversation, head over to the forum at japanhistoryforum.com or forums.samurai-archives.com. Either way, you can get there from samuraiarchives.com. There's a hyphen in there. I don't know why I did that. But anyway, you can get to the forum over there. Or, uh, actually, if you prefer Reddit, I've gone ahead and created a subreddit for the Samurai Archives podcast. So if you lean towards Reddit rather than a forum, you can get us at r slash samuraipodcast and continue the discussion over there. Otherwise, if you'd like to pick up any books that were mentioned, please head over to SamuraiPodcast.com. You can find the links over there to the specific books and articles mentioned, as well as links to buy them, as well as our link to Amazon. And if you use that, it kicks us back a little bit to just help the podcast. And if you use any of those links to buy the books, it'll kick back a little bit for us to support the podcast. And hey, lastly, why don't you head over to iTunes and give us a favorable rating and or review. It's much appreciated. I guess that is it for now. Catch you later.